Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. The post-4th of July week has just been strange here in America. I'd like to write it off as summertime blues. But there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. But it goes much deeper than that. There seems no end in sight for the mass shootings that make participating in public events feel like an iffy proposition at best. There's also a new COVID strain on the horizon, aptly called the Ninja Variant, because it's able to slip past our immune system ninja-style, contributing to the rising rate of breakthrough cases and reinfections. Apparently, epidemiologists have been sounding the alarm for months and are now blaming the rise of Ninja, at least in part, on the stubborn anti-vax minority. And if that doesn't make you want to stay indoors and read a book, President Biden's statement on Friday about the Supreme Court's disastrous Roe versus Wade decision might change your mind. That's another saying that you, the women of America, can determine the outcome of this issue. I don't think the court, or for that matter, the Republicans who for decades have pushed the extreme agenda, have a clue about the power of American women. But they're about to find out, in my view. It's my hope and strong belief that women will in fact turn out in record numbers to reclaim the rights that have taken from them by the court. And let me be clear, while I wish it had not come to this, this is the fastest route available. I'm just stating a basic fundamental notion. The fastest way to restore Roe Ro, is to pass a national law codifying Roe, which I will sign immediately upon its passage I'm at my desk. Add insult to injury, Friday, there was international condemnation of our cruel new right-wing policy when the European Parliament voted to condemn the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe, and further demanded that the European Union recognize the right to abortion in its charter, and to provide safe, legal, and free abortion services, prenatal and maternal health care services, voluntary family planning, youth-friendly services, and HIV prevention, treatment and support without discrimination. All this simply seems like sound policy to me, and if the whole of the European Union can figure out just how to protect women's reproductive health care, then why the hell can't we? President Biden issues an executive order on abortion access for women in states that have restricted abortion after the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade with specific steps on access to medication abortion, helping women cross state lines if necessary to obtain abortion services, and protecting patient privacy. Possibly adding to the present condition of Malay here in the United States is the increasing unrest happening around the world that's resulted in political upheaval in Britain, ceaseless war in Ukraine, and the case of Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe being assassinated. The 67-year-old Abe was shot in the neck and heart at close range while giving a campaign speech by a middle-aged ex-military man wielding a homemade double-barreled shotgun and in a country with some of the lowest incidents of gun violence in the world. Abe, who many considered Trump-like in his conservative leaning towards nationalistic approach to governing, was Japan's longest-serving prime minister. 
He resigned in 2020 after eight years in office, citing legitimate health concerns. But his poll numbers had dropped to the low 30s as the Japanese economy tanked during the pandemic. After laying low for a short time, Abe's return to politics was met with mixed emotions. He was being investigated for election fraud, and his goal to normalize Japan's military after decades of post-war pacifism wasn't widely supported. But on Friday, even Japanese opposition leaders railed against Abe's assassination, saying this shouldn't happen in a democracy like ours. This attack was, uh, has had a profound impact on the psyche of the Japanese people. This is a, this is a different... Uh, a different culture they're not used to, as unfortunately we are. Here in the United States, we know how deep the wounds of gun violence go. Yeah, I'm keeping his wife and family in my prayers, and the United States is standing in solidarity with our ally Japan. Ivanka Trump tweeted on Friday, and I quote, saddened by the death of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Abe's advice, wisdom, and warmth had a profound impact on me during my government service. Not sure if you call what Ivanka did government service or profiteering, but either way, the assassination of Shinzo Abe is indeed a blow to democracy, to his country, and to the world. Well, there has rarely been a more bizarre day in British politics. A mass exodus from government ranks, ministers and aides quitting almost by the minute. And the big question this morning on everyone's lips, can Boris Johnson survive? And if so, for how long? The world is also scratching its collective head, wondering just what England's prime minister and resident wild man Boris Johnson is doing holed up in 10 Downing Street after resigning from his post on Thursday. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister. Boris Johnson is stepping down as the UK's Prime Minister, unable to overcome a string of scandals around unlawful parties during the pandemic and broader questions about his integrity. Though Boris Johnson didn't gather his thugs and storm the Parliament to try and stay in power, the comparisons between Johnson and Trump as sort of boorish twin spirits who buffooned and bullshitted their way to the top are numerous and true. You're it. You're it. You're it. Quitties. Any quitties. You're it. Quitties. No, any quitties. No startsies. You can't do that. Can't do. Cannot. Stamped it. Can't do. Double stamped it. No erases. Cannot. Triple stamped it. No erases. Touch no, blue. Make no, it no, through. No. You can't triple stamp a double stamp. Even after the defection of his key allies and a whole heap of resignations, Boris tried to Boris his way out of having to quit. According to the New York Times, Boris was probably the last person in Westminster to realize that the jig was up. The Times went on to say he has always acted like Mr. Trump, as if the rules didn't apply to him. Facts are ignored if they're inconvenient or dismissed altogether. Nothing matters more to him than himself. Almost every week, Boris enjoyed a fresh scandal, mainly trivial, but the incredibly deceitful way that he weaseled around mounting disapproval finally hit a wall when this week, an ally he'd appointed to oversee the discipline and welfare of the Conservative Party was credibly accused of fondling young boys again. Yeah, again, as if it wasn't the first time the fondler was accused. But Boris claimed he knew nothing about it, which wasn't true. 
his defense quickly crumbled and his denials were hastily withdrawn. But it was too late. Boris was done for. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. Conservatives knew they were gambling when they chose Boris to deliver on Brexit. Like Republicans knew when they gambled on Trump to deliver on taxes. However, the Brexit deal was not oven-ready, as Boris claimed, but half-baked as a huge blow to the empire's economy. Only time will tell if Boris was worth the risk. But England has shown it's still a functioning democracy, able to kick a populist blowhard to the fucking curb. A quote from the House of Commons. We've seen in great democracy what happens when divisions are entrenched and not bridged. We cannot allow that to happen here. I must admit, I'm a little jealous if it only had been so easy to get rid of Trump. It's gone too far. He has to go. Because he's a buffoon. He's an idiot and you can't trust him. Leave. Go. Just go. But we know it's just a matter of time for the former president. File this under drip, drip, drip. Trump's Make America Great Again Super PAC has finally raised red flags with the FEC. The Political Action Committee connected to Trump is under increased scrutiny from federal officials because of apparent discrepancies in its financial disclosures. According to a July 6th letter the Federal Election Commission sent to the MAGA Super PAC, they've made several mistakes in their first quarter 2022 financial report, including discrepancies in its reported cash on hand, in addition to calculation errors. I mean, seriously, folks, no shit. And if they don't respond by August 10th, the FEC is promising an audit which is probably the least of Trump's current worries as he mulls over how to beat DeSantis to the punch and announce his 2024 presidential run first, which I'm sure he's hoping is his get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, guess again, Donnie. First of all, I don't even think you're going to do it. If you're a conservative, you don't just have to roll over and die because the other side would like you to. We have the option of fighting, and that's what America has seen from Donald Trump. So we need to fight back. I'm doing this because I believe in it. Donald Trump has opened the door for people who are willing to fight, to stand up for themselves. But now we gotta walk through it. It's for my country, it's for our freedoms, it's for our liberties. I have five young children. The economy's on the table. Your freedom of speech is on the table. Your second amendment is on the table. I want them to grow up in an America that they recognize, and that's not what I'm seeing from the left. So we need you out there. We need you mobilized. And when you do, we will make liberals cry again. Speaking of just plain weird Trumpland shit, the coinciding invasive tax audits of two FBI chiefs who dared to piss off the former president has come under scrutiny this week. What a fucking surprise, you don't say. Until a reporter broke the story, neither the former FBI director James Comey or his deputy Andrew McCabe knew that they'd both been hit by the same radical IRS audit that is jokingly referred to as an autopsy without the benefit of death. But I wouldn't know anything about that, right? In fact, I even reached out to Michael Schmidt of the New York Times and said, hey, what about the same shit they did to me? In fact, only one in roughly 31,000 people are selected each year for the random audit. So what are the odds that two of Trump's perceived enemies 
Make it three if you want to count me and their wives would be put through the sword of hell only two years apart. My answer, slim to none. But what occurred here uh, is extraordinary. Either there was, uh, through sheer luck, through random sampling, uh, the IRS was able to land a blow through its audit process on the two people that uh, Trump had at top of his enemies list. Um, the IRS was able to land a blow uh, better than Trump was able to on his own or the process was corrupted. And either of those outcomes are pretty extraordinary. Um, the IRS has a, a history in the past of being used and accused um, of, of, of its power being employed for political purposes. And in this instance, many people sort of look at this and say, Slim left the building. Either something in both of their returns triggered the audit, or maybe the audits were part of a criminal investigation that Trump was pursuing against them. But no charges were ever filed. Most likely, someone at the IRS or federal government was prompted by the former president to fuck these guys up. Remember what happened to me with Jonathan Fry? The Trump-appointed IRS commissioner has said absolutely nothing to implicate himself, but it appears that the matter will be turned over to the Treasury Inspector General for further review. We'll keep an eye on the story. On the good news front, jobs report for June, Labor Department says the U.S. added 372,000 jobs. Unemployment rate stays at 3.6%. Friday's strong jobs report prompted President Biden to say, and I quote, we have more Americans working in the private sector today than any day during Donald Trump's presidency. More people than any time in our history. The White House added that the employment situation leaves the United States well positioned to tackle a range of global economic challenges from global inflation to the economic fallout from Putin's war in Ukraine. Huge driver as to why we now have gas higher than we have ever seen it before in my lifetime in this country. And so he has facilitated this uh, and I think that's had a huge impact on overall inflation because everything that's produced uh, relies on energy and when those energy costs go up it has an effect across the board. Census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. So, while those on the right only want to talk about gas prices, which by the way happen to fucking be coming down, and inflation, because with the January 6th hearings going on, inflation is so much easier to digest than the truth about Trump and his cronies. And Republicans are hitting back, tearing into the highly publicized hearings as a circus meant to divert attention away from the Biden administration's numerous problems. All they're doing is trying to paint a new political narrative that voters need to think about in November because the Democrat agenda has failed. I think the country sees it for what it is. It's a partisan political uh, committee um, that, that uh, the American people are focused on a whole lot of other issues. Last night's hearing was a primetime dud. No, nothing came out of it that we didn't, we didn't know before. It didn't change anybody's minds. They want to throw Donald Tr Trump in jail if they can't get that done. They want to prevent his name from appearing on the ballot. But the twist here is an inversion of reality that frankly sounds scripted coming from Fox, Newsmax, and various conservative pundits. Because they say over and over again, 
The Biden administration isn't talking about the issues. Anyone here on planet Earth knows that Biden addresses gas prices and inflation all the time. In fact, maybe too much. And it's going to get tough to hide behind all of the scripted mumbo jumbo about the economy as we bounce back. Plus, we Democrats have bigger fish to fry. We have our rights to protect, an out-of-control Supreme Court to rein in, and the next chapter of the January 6th hearings to look forward to. Here comes the truth, folks, and it's going to be good. Elect committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol will be in order. These false claims of election fraud. A massive effort to spread false and fraudulent information. The stuff that his people were shuttling out to the public was bullshit. He said, dead people are voting. There's a combination of Italians, and Germans, and Hugo Chavez, and the Venezuelans, something with the Philippines. Indians are getting paid to vote. Are you out of your effing mind? It was not true. He's become detached from reality. Crazy stuff. What they were proposing, I thought was nuts. They were idiotic claims. Completely nuts. Votes were still being counted. It's too early to tell, too early to, to call the race. We should not go and declare victory until we had a better sense of the numbers. I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. I respect Attorney General Barr, so I accepted what he said was saying. There was ketchup dripping down the wall, and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The president was extremely angry and had thrown his lunch against the wall. After the election, what were the chances of President Trump winning the election? None. He delivered to the president pretty blunt terms uh, that he was going to lose. We would lose nine to nothing in the Supreme Court. The president's mind was made up. Rather than accept the results of the election, he tried to convince the American people the election had been stolen. And now for the main event. Today we welcome back to our show one of the smartest guys on the circuit and our resident expert on the January 6th hearings, Norm Eisen. Norm's latest book, Overcoming Trumpery, is a great read, especially now as we gear up for the midterms and watch Republican candidates trying to mimic Trumpian tactics to get elected. The book also reveals the seven deadly sins of Trumpery. Eisen is a CNN legal analyst and the founder and executive chair of State's United Democracy Center, a nonpartisan organization advancing free, fair, and secure elections. Eisen is an attorney and author who has served in a broad array of government roles, including special counsel and special assistant to President Barack Obama for ethics and government reform. In that role, Eisen was dubbed Mr. No and the Ethics Czar, well known for his tough anti-corruption approach to governance. As co-counsel of the House Judiciary Committee's first Trump impeachment, Eisen is active with the Brookings Institute and other groups working to expose the myriad of ways Trump and his cronies broke the law not only on January 6th, but in their attempts to overturn the election as well. From exposing Trump's potential crimes in Georgia to suing the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, Eisen is a witness to history. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Norm, as a guy who worked with the Senate Judiciary, Cassidy Hutchinson, I want to just pick your brain on this one. Cassidy Hutchinson was a phenomenal witness for the January 6th committee, in part 
because she was simply willing, yeah, because she was simply willing to tell the truth despite the risks. But she's been relentlessly attacked by Trump world, of course, right? And her testimony called nothing but hearsay. Now, assuming that Pat Cipollone's testimony corroborates Hutchinson's claims, what else do you think that he'll reveal that we don't already know? And why would you say that that's important? Uh, Michael, thanks for having me. The 200th episode of the podcast. I can't believe it. It seems like just yesterday that I was meeting with you in New York City uh, to get your help on the impeachment of the first impeachment of Trump. And you were warning me that he will never peacefully transition out of the White House. And of course, your question is about the consequences of Donald Trump's refusal to do just that. So there's a very suitable, uh, like a bookend quality between that first conversation and this conversation. Now, Pat Cipollone is going to continue moving the ball down the field on the criminal case that the 1-6 committee is, is setting up against Trump and that Cassidy Hutchison advanced. Here's what I think Pat is going to say. And of course, I know him well from uh, uh, from my time in D.C., uh, negotiated, talked to him every day when he was adverse to me in the impeachment. And Michael, you know, he was a Trump, a fierce Trump attack dog. He got up there in the impeachment. Unlike when you appeared in Congress, Pat lied and lied in the impeachment to defend Trump. But he's coming here under oath. I think he's going to tell the truth, and I think he's going to corroborate Cassidy in three big areas. Area number one, Trump's murderous intent. And I don't think murder is too strong a word for what was in Trump's mind and heart. You know, Michael, we've heard so much about how tough it is to prove Trump's intent. Baloney. Cassidy Hutchison is only the latest step forward in proving that the guy knew, look at her testimony, and Cipollone's going to advance this. He'll corroborate that Trump knew that this mob was armed and dangerous, that Trump was warned not to march for that reason. But he marched, he wanted to march anyhow, aware of the risk of violence. And then most devastating, I think Pat will corroborate that conversation that Cassidy Hutchison shared uh, where um, uh, Pat Meadows and she are together and they're talking about uh, trying to do something and Trump won't do anything because he agrees with the mob that was chanting Mike Pence should should be hanged. So I think that is the most important thing. But there is much more that Pat can talk about. Number two, knowledge of criminality. He warned Cassidy Hutchison. Uh, of the risk that they would be charged with every crime in the book under the sun. So we'll hear about that from him. And then third and finally, um, all of this stuff that preceded January 6th, because it was a long conspiracy. For example, Pat called the um, efforts, Trump's corrupt efforts to take over DOJ with Jeffrey Clark to attack the election a murder-suicide pact. So we'll hear about that and much more. I think it's going to be a blockbuster testimony, and it's on video, so the whole world will see it in future hearings. Okay, I totally agree with you on most of the points. So 
There's a great article in Law and Crime by, by a, um, a journalist by the name of Marissa Sarnoff. And it starts out by basically turning around and talking about how uh, Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony um, has been, you know, we'll call it uh, speciously attacked by mm-hmm. the Republicans. And the reason why I brought you up uh, as the guy who handled the second impeachment and who was working with the uh, Judiciary Committee, this, of course, was done by the on the Twitter account for the Republican, uh, the House Judiciary Committee. And, of course, here comes another Trump ridiculous loyalist, and I'm talking about Jim Jordan. And he puts out this tweet, right? It's literally all hearsay evidence, um, whereby Jim Jordan refers to Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. What a joke. Um, Now, the problem that I see here is hearsay, as discussed by Marissa, and I've spoken about this both on television, this podcast, and in the papers— Hearsay is a very complicated issue, right? The it is. legal de- the, right, the legal definition and out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted therein. That's the Black's Law Dictionary definition for mm-hmm. it. What we've seen so far is a great story by Cassidy Hutchinson. The question becomes whether or not that this is going to be corroborated by others. And as you know, we have um, uh, another young lady that's going to be testifying very, very soon, uh, Sarah Matthews. But also, I believe tomorrow, uh, Anthony, uh, also known as Tony Ornato, is uh, also going to be, um, I think, speaking. But one of the problems that you have with Ornato is that he has already stated um, that the story that really shocked the world about Trump uh, throwing a temper tantrum, and who wouldn't believe that one, while inside the SUV beast, um, is not true. He never lunged at the Secret Service agent. He never tried to grab the steering wheel. Now, one thing, Norman, you'll recall when um, we were together uh, here in the city, and you were, again, working with the Judiciary Committee, is that I told you that Trump has no fingerprints on anything. So there won't be any documentary evidence. How do we get past this whole hearsay concept? Because Ornato's already saying it's not true. Um, You already have the Republicans doing what they do best, which is to stay on Trump's message that this is all a lie, it's all done within which to injure him and the party. What do we do in order to get past this hearsay definition, which I think is going to be very difficult. Again, I think it was a great story. I just think it's going to be very difficult, um, you know, to prove any of this. A number of thoughts on what's going on with Cassidy Hutchison and her testimony. As a trial lawyer, Michael, you know, in and out of courtrooms for the past 30 years, I've, um, I've often had to utilize the hearsay rules, including... Uh, in some very, very complex um, situations with unavailable witnesses. And I want to talk about I want to talk about uh, that in a second. First of all, though, 
I want to make the point, and it's something that, again, it, you know a lot about personally, and it's very <laughs> appropriate for the 200th epi- episode, Michael. The attacks on Cassidy Hutchison appear to be part of a witness intimidation and obstruction of justice conspiracy. And I think they need to be investigated as such. Don't, as I wrote in Slate um, uh, last week when these these start started emerging, these vicious assaults, people talk as if there's two different storylines. One storyline is that um, Cassidy... Uh, the damage uh, that um, Cassidy Hutchison um, sustained from the personal toll where she was the victim of these uh, veiled messages. I know that'll sound familiar to you, Michael, these veiled messages before she testified, right? I think that you you have- You could bet your bottom dollar. I still have them. You were told, yeah, you were told, for example, you were told, I know because we studied this in the impeachment as part of the obstruction of justice count against former President Trump. You were told um, you have friends in high places. You should sleep well tonight, right? Yeah, Bob Costello. Bob Costello, who happens to be the lawyer, no shockingly, uh, to uh, Rudy Colludi, drunken Giuliani. Uh, So... um, I think we should call him from now on uh, Pina Colada Giuliani. <laughs> sure, um, why not? So, uh, so, um, so she got those messages. And then after she testified, she was attacked. So my question is, is this two separate things or is it all part of the same thing? And do you have people like Ornato who are very close to Trump, who are anonymously smearing her second and third hand, where this is a kind of a good cop, bad cop routine. You saw the same thing. And it features, it's not only the um, the good cop, bad cop, it's the involvement of lawyers. It's the payment of legal fees. Then they pull the legal fees. I break it all down in slate in my op-ed. I think DOJ needs to investigate that. And we'll see if people step forward. Now, in terms of how this no, testimony Norman, Norman, I don't mean, be, Norman, I don't mean to interrupt you for a quick second. Interrupt here, me. The DOJ, Isn't that the, DOJ, the whole point of the podcast? Yes, we but the, DO, the DOJ needs to investigate something. I have here sitting right next to me the letter to the OIG, Michael Horowitz, asking them to investigate the unconstitutional remand of me back to prison, which we all know was done. We, we all know was done by Bill Barr and Donald Trump. It's yeah. I mean, it is it's just it's just so Michael, obvious. It makes there are so many sick. things Merrick Garland needs. They just need to start to investigate anything. And yet, yet they don't do anything. You can't even get a goddamn FOIA document done. Well, first of all, it makes me sick to see how people are celebrating Big Bill Barr, in who's now coming before the committee as if he's some hero because he's trashing Trump. Yeah, he's no fucking hero, that's for sure. He is, he's, he's culpable in so much wrongdoing in the Trump administration, including the shameful treatment that you got. Putting that to the side, Merrick Garland is now, we know, investigating because there have been a uh, onslaught of grand jury subpoenas and raids 
investigating uh, not just the violence on January 6th, where you have over 800 people who have now been charged, low-level people, but they're moving up the ladder, Michael. But these and are norm, these are low-level people. No, they're, these, are, these are these jerk-off, these... Yeah, these are well, these let me make offs. the case to you. <laughs> let me make the case to you that it's not just low level people because they're moving up the ladder and that they're serving subpoenas on people in direct proximity to Trump. And to me, it's an arrow pointing to Trump. Let me give you some examples. They have served subpoenas on Trump's coup lawyers. Michael, you're so fortunate that you got out when you did. I know it was very painful for you. The first time I met you, you were about to report to uh, Otisville, report to the federal prison. I could see the anguish on your face for yourself, your family. But yeah, look at the. But you got it's, out. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a killer to the family. It's a killer. But imagine if you had stuck around for this mess, which is a killer to our democracy and the raids. Now they've raided Jeffrey Clark's home. He was Trump's inside coup lawyer advising on the coup at Trump on the coup at DOJ. And they've raided, uh, they, they, they served a search warrant and seized the devices of John Eastman. I filed ethics complaints, by the way, against both Eastman and Clark. They, uh, so the two of them were in direct touch with Trump to plan the coup. And the committee has exposed Trump's deep involvement in the attempted coup. So I think Garland and many other subpoenas have been served on Trump's political allies, those who helped him out in the states with his machinations and the conspiracy and the phony electoral slates and the phony votes. He said in Georgia, just find 11,780 votes that didn't exist. So I think Garland is headed for Trump. I don't know if he'll charge him, but I do know this. The Georgia DA is going to charge him. So finally, Michael. What goes around comes around. Uh, Trump is finally going to get a taste of his own medicine, in my opinion, at least from the Georgia DA and maybe from Merrick Garland. Okay, so let me obviously, I know the playbook. I know the Trump playbook because, in part, I was responsible for creating it. And here's what he's going to do with Georgia. So I hope somebody from that committee is actually listening to the podcast because this is what he's going to do. He's going to claim, I didn't lie. All right. I didn't call telling him to do something improper. I told him to do something proper. I told him to go find the 11,780 votes that were stolen from me. I've said continuously all along that I won the election, that quite frankly, right, I won. And at the end of the day, these votes were stolen from me. So I was telling the secretary, Raffensperger, to go find them. I didn't tell him to make it up. And these are the lies that Trump is going to promote on and on and on. And again, he's so insane. He's such a narcissistic sociopath that, he's, that he believes his own bullshit. And if, in fact, you don't have the intent to defraud, I think that Georgia is going to... Georgia does not have a slam dunk for a case, but I will tell you what was a fucking slam dunk, and now it's gonzo and bye-bye. My dear old friend there, Alvin Bragg, right? And I've, oh my used, God. This, I've used this line. I was just on Ari Melber, and prior to that, um, I was on Yasmin Vesugian. Here's the story. 
We all know the story of Al Capone. You couldn't get him on murder, racketeering, extortion. You got him on taxes. Is there anyone listening to this podcast? Is there anyone with half a brain out there that wouldn't be happy just to see him accountable for a crime, any crime that he's committed? We know the tax crime exists because you have people like Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn who've been investigating this for over two years Maybe more, two and a half years. That turned around and told Alvin Bragg. But what did he do? Seven weeks in, not picking up a single goddamn piece of paper, he makes the ultimate decision that there's not enough for us to go on. And so, look, you know, that to me was the ace in the hole. That was the case that you don't have to prove all of this, you know, hearsay, whether it works, it doesn't work. And so, so you know, that would have negated this whole this whole argument. Yes, it's important for our country. It's important for a historical perspective. But as it relates to ensuring that Trump and his acolytes in this inner circle are all held accountable. Now, mind you, I want to break this apart for a half a sec, and then I want to move on. But I believe Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony is not going to be the nail in the coffin that everybody wants it to be in regard to Trump. But I do believe that her testimony corroborates so much of the documentary evidence, the text, the emails, the voice messages that they have that they were able to seize, whether it was from Meadows or from Giuliani's computer or from uh, Roger Stone's or any of these others. But, you know, I believe that for them, it definitely is real serious trouble. For Trump, I don't think that this creates what people are hoping for. And it's a sad story because Alvin Bragg had him dead to rights. But, you know, I want to move on for one quick second and talk to you about Sarah Matthews, the next one that's going to be coming up. Now, she was so disgusted that she quit on the day of the insurrection. Now, let, let me say this. Her testimony probably won't be as explosive as Cassidy Hutchinson's, but what do you think that she has to offer the January 6th committee? And further, who else do you think will eventually, you know, that we will eventually hear from? I mean, look, let's be, let's be fair about this, that the hearings have, you know, had to go with the flow of evidence. But do you see any new surprises coming ahead? Um. I do think that there are going to be surprises, Michael. The committee has been so adept in uh, giving us new content in every hearing. There's always multiple surprises. That's been part of the recipe that they have um, uh, used to really grip America. I've been calling it TikTok Watergate. (laughs) Because uh, what they do is in a mix of short video clips that kind of fit the attention span that all of us have developed in this very speeded up 21st century streaming era of Netflix and YouTube and and TikTok. Uh, They have these, these clips and the clips provide shocking, startling, important and new information. So there's a stream of news, and then they complement that uh, with the live witnesses. Uh, and I just think that um, uh, that they have been very effective 
in providing the surprises. Now, what are the future surprises likely to be? What should be? What should we? What should we look for uh, in those uh, in those surprises? I would really point you to three areas, and I and I think that the and I'll talk about what the coming how the coming witnesses uh, will uh, will plug into that as well. In area number one, um, I I really would um, say that what you should look for is more proof of Trump's violent intent. You know. Um, th- that was probably the most sensational part of the uh, of the hearings, and I think we're going to get more proof uh, about Trump's um, Trump's desire to see harm come to Congress and to Mike Pence from Sarah Matthews. She may corroborate Cassidy. She may know other things. For example, that there were frantic efforts to get Trump to do something in that 187 minutes, and he refused to do it. After all, she was the deputy press secretary, so she would be in the loop about what public statements were or were not made. Number two, I expect that we're going to get more evidence about the ongoing nature of the conspiracy. It's not just this uh, obstruction of justice and witness tampering that we talked about with Cassidy Hutchison that still seems to be going on. Michael, I think the insurrection hasn't ended. We've got a hundred Trump-loving candidates from coast to coast, and uh, hundreds of bills inspired by Trump's big lie, uh, pushing uh, the idea that the 2020 election was stolen. The insurrection hasn't ended. The conspiracy to attack American democracy is still going. That's a second area where I want to learn more, and I think the committee will give us more. And then the third area is the connection between Trump, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, the people around Trump, Mark Meadows, Giuliani, and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, these violent insurrectionists who plan for insurrection. I think they're going to show communications among those groups. They've teased it. So that's three of the areas. I could go on, but expect a lot more surprises. Yeah, look... Um, Sarah Matthews, she went ahead and she put out this tweet right after the uh-huh. Republican Judiciary Committee started attacking uh, Cassidy Hutchinson. And she put this out. And I think it's, it's interesting. We should explore it for a second. And here's her quote. Anyone downplaying Cassidy Hutchinson's role or her access in the West Wing either doesn't understand how the Trump White House worked or is attempting to discredit her because they're scared of how damning this testimony is. Hello? That's exactly what they did to me when they had Matt Gates was walking around the, the floor of the oversight committee hearing when he wasn't even supposed to be there when trump was tweeting out all sorts of bullshit about me and my family lies fucking lies why it's witness tampering it's obstruction of justice there's so much stuff to get trump on you know i've always wondered why and because there's so many familiar faces on this committee um this january 6th committee that I've been before. I've always wondered why they haven't, you know, just reached out to me. And I'm not talking about having to go in and testify. I just always wondered why they haven't reached out to turn around to say something like, how did you know 
two and a half years before the insurrection that Donald Trump would do something like this? How does what Cassidy Hutchinson say? Well, how is it that what Cassidy Hutchinson said, how does it fit into the same things that you said at your House Oversight Committee hearing? And if you look at them, there's so many parallels. There's so many, there's so many similarities to what went on and what will continue to go on unless that this danger to our democracy is stopped and Trump always uses the same playbook. It's not like he's creative, that he's some sort of a great NFL you know, coach where they're changing the playbooks and the plays all the time. He follows the same playbook. The only intelligent thing that I will say- The corruption that Trump has playbook. Managed, the, the only thing that playbook. Trump, exactly. But the only thing that Trump does and does better than anybody else is that he leaves no fingerprints. And that's why all of these folks around him, if you put them into a circle, will all ultimately point and say, I did it, as I said when I was being sentenced, I did it at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. Is that going to be enough to get him? Again, I have my doubts. Well, um, I want to comment on... I want to comment on the whether it's enough to get him because i think we're in different territory i wrote a long piece for the washington post on how the one six committee has moved the ball on intent michael if you listen to and and there's three places where i think the criminal case is shaping up nicely and funny willis is going to prosecute him you can't get a conviction if you don't have charges that's what alvin bragg did that was so terribly wrong shame on him um, and, and you helped him so much. So it's a personal slap in the face to you and everybody else. Uh, uh, Wesselberg's ex-daughter-in-law, she tied herself in a pretzel, uh, to help. Um, so, um, so, uh, here's what I want to say. And I wrote about this in the Washington Post. There's three areas where I think the intent hurdle that you point to can be overcome. First, on Michael, on the phony electoral certificates, no matter what Trump believed or disbelieved about the election, he does not have a right to forge electoral certificates. And the committee has shown proof that Donald Trump was in the middle of that scheme with the phony electors and the false counterfeit fraudulent certificates. They played video of Rana um romney mcdaniel the rnc chair who you know well um testifying that trump called and wanted her help with the forged certificates and put handed the phone to john eastman okay so that it doesn't matter if you believe you won or lost the election you can't forge certificates it's like oj he believed that that merchandise in the las vegas hotel room belonged to him but guess what you're not allowed to do self-help. He went to jail for years. Listen, Norm, Number Norm two. Not, to, not to stop you. Well, let me just take this one point stop for me. a second here. Because sure. you, you, as the senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings, <laughs> in, right? At Brookings, and an expert on law, ethics, and anti-corruption. How do you get past the hearsay? He turns around, he says, I never told that to Rana. 
Show me, show me a single piece of Here's paper. Here's what you do. Show me an email. Show Here's me a text. what you do. Show me you a voice recording. You subpoena. Here's how I would do it if I were the prosecutor. I would subpoena. There's a here. There are hearsay exceptions. So you yes. bring you subpoena Rana, and then um, Rana comes into the courtroom and she testifies. That's no longer hearsay because she was a part of that conversation. Okay. She's testifying about her direct, what she said, okay? What happened? You could never prove a crime on this standard. Then you get Trump. If Trump doesn't, if he's not willing to testify, and he won't, he'll probably take the Fifth Amendment, then you have another hearsay exception that comes to play. So I think there there are exceptions to the hearsay rules. There are dozens, both in the federal rules of evidence, in the Georgia state rules, and in the case law, and that conver- I'm telling you, that proof of criminal conduct, then you say, okay, I'll get John Eastman, because he was a part of it. He's going to take the Fifth Amendment. So you're able to prove it up. And if Rana won't cooperate, guess what? We have the video. So they'll use the video from the committee if she refuses to show up. That's why the 1-6 committee is so important to those uh, Georgia hearings. And unlike the... Yeah, so that's how you get around the hearsay. Mike. But Norm, wouldn't it just be easier? Again, we do have certain documents that have Donald Trump's fingerprints attached to it. His Twitter account, simply going after him for obstruction of justice and witness tampering. There's more than a half a dozen tweets about me and my family. Obstruction of justice, witness tampering. It happened the night before, the day before, the day of, you know, um, my testimony. It's, I mean, let's go after the low-hanging fruit. Let's go after him for the IRS, uh, for taxes and so on. I mean, the guy took like, what, $170 million of, um, of refunds and so on. They have his tax returns. I made sure of that with Cy Vance, but so far... As we would say in Yiddish, gunish magunish, nothing for nothing. I don't get it. I, I, Norm, I, I just don't get it. Again, you know, I don't want to argue with you about the hearsay rule. You are the expert We're on not it. Arguing. I understand. We're not I arguing. understand the exceptions and so on, but it creates a problem. And again, you know, this committee, the hearsay rule doesn't apply because it's not a court of law. Um, But if, in fact, that you are bringing this matter, uh, as hopefully Merrick Garland will do, that they refer it and it becomes a case, um, I think that his lawyers will just start screaming and making motion after motion after motion based upon hearsay. And instead, I think we go after the stuff, the low-hanging fruit. Maybe we're not going to get him on insurrection trying to overthrow the U.S. government. Would be nice, but let's get him for something. Make sure that the guy is sitting there in his orange jumper with his cotton candy hair flopping in the wind. Right? I do. I I, I do deal with the hearsay rules. It's, uh, it's rule 801 through 807 of the federal rules of evidence. There's a Georgia analog. Uh, You know, I deal with those for a living. I'm telling you, one way or the other, that conversation that the committee played and many others are coming in. And just for the connoisseurs, because you got some in your listening audience, I urge them to look at the definitions on on these phony certificates. Look at the definitions in Rule 801, in particular, 
Rule 801 D2 uh, on opposing party statements. Look at the exceptions to the hearsay rules um, for declarant unavailable. That's uh, Rule 804, the other exceptions in 803. But let's not get bogged down on the it's never a disagreement, Michael. We have debates. That's why I love coming on the podcast from the moment I met you. Hey, I want to tell something. Let me tell something to the listeners. If you want to be a fly on the wall, the day I traveled to New York and I met with Michael Cohen before he went to Otisville, I, uh, I, I had two meetings with you before you went to Otisville, one in person, one by telephone. If you want to know what the conversation was like, it's just like the conversations we have on the podcast. Okay, it's a healthy it's a healthy debate. Now, I think that Fonnie Willis, I hear your rage about Alvin Bragg, and I share it. It's just outrageous. I wrote a big Brookings report explaining all the evidence and those brilliant prosecutors. I'm sure you dealt with them. Mark Pomerantz and Kerry. Brilliant guy. Brilliant. Brilliant guys. They resigned when Bragg would did the wrong thing. They resigned. They said, you have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Fonnie Willis is no Alvin Bragg. She's tough. She's determined. She's been pushing this forward. Michael, she's not afraid of uh, controversial prosecutions. She was the lead prosecutor in the Atlanta teacher cheating scandal. She took on the teachers of Atlanta. They're much more popular than Donald Trump is in Atlanta. Uh, So she she has no fear. The evidence points to prosecution and she's going to prosecute. Now, what I thought you were going to say, it's not the hearsay that's a problem for her. She's very carefully building a case and she's putting people in the grand jury. She's gone after um, Pina Colada Giuliani. She's gone after um, the uh, other lawyers in Trump orbit. She subpoenaed them. She even subpoenaed Lindsey Graham, who called and tried to get votes. He called into Georgia to get votes thrown out. So, so let me, she's let me very move, let me determined. Into, yeah. But, but I thought let me you move, were going to say, into, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Let me no, finish okay. my you sentence. Thought, let me finish ahead. my sentence. I thought you were going to say Trump is going to tie her in knots with his usual frivolous legal objections that take years, like happened with uh, Cy Vance. That's why that case wasn't charged. Trump slow rolled until Vance left office, and then the new guy did the wrong thing. Well, yeah. uh uh, that is where I think he's punched out because the Supreme Court has repeatedly rejected all those arguments. Now yes. he's like he's the he's like the boy who cried wolf. He's he's got no more traction, and they're very speedily going to slap that aside. He's going to be prosecuted in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. I t- look, look. I believe that Fannie Willis is going to do the the right thing, and you know, obviously, some of the people that. Uh, they've subpoenaed Lindsey Graham. Uh, you got Rudy Kaludi, Cleta Mitchell, I think, was subpoenaed. John Eastman. You got the guy uh, uh, Cheeseboro, Jenna Ellis. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot it's there. It's the Rogues wa- Gallery. The Rogues yeah, that's, Gallery. That, that's for sure. But I want to move on for a quick second and ask you this. Because you, along with the Brookings Institute, you put out sort of this um, quintessential guide to the January 6th hearings. And in it, and I'm gonna, it's, it's stated, I'm going to quote, 
There is substantial evidence of all the essential elements of those federal and state offenses and suggests there is a substantial basis for prosecutors to go forward. Now, I want to imagine something. Let's imagine that you are prosecuting the case. Who would you bring to trial and on what charges? Uh, Well, I laid this out in the Brookings report. You know, I would want to, um, assuming that the the trajectory of proof continues the way it has, I would bring four. I wouldn't overcomplicate the case. Um, I would charge Trump, of course. I would charge Mark Meadows. If the proof is continues the way it is, I'm not saying there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt today. I'm not privy to everything these prosecutors have. There's substantial proof. And of course, the federal judge has already found likely crimes as to Trump out in California. Um, so Trump, Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, because he seems to have been the orchestrator of all of this um, activity, um, John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark. Those are the four that I would concentrate on. Um, You don't want to overcharge the case. There appears to be substantial proof against all of them. And if the evidence continues to come come in the way it is, uh, that's who I would go after. You know, right now, we're not at the level of uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt for all of them on all the possible crimes. But I think we're going to get there. Okay. Well, sounds like... uh... Sounds like a plan. Uh, I think, uh, Norm, they should bring you on as the as the charging counsel in this case. So I wouldn't then... be allowed to come on your podcast if I went back to work for the government, Michael. So that's uh, a sacrifice I'm not willing to make. I appreciate that. You have no idea. So let me ask you then about this. What about yes. all of the sitting members of Congress who were clearly involved in January 6th, and not just the usual suspects who yeah. asked for pardons like Matt Gates and Louis the Jerkoff Gomert and Biggs, right? But the, but the fucking liars like Barry Loudermilk. I mean, shouldn't they be expelled or at the very least censored in some way? I mean, for example, will the January 6th committee ever get around to making some recommendations, any recommendation on what to do with congressional coup plotters? Here's what I think is going to happen. Here's what I assess. Uh, With the prospect that the House of Representatives is about to change hands, Uh, We are in uh, a peculiar and juvenile phase of the House Republican Caucus, uh, which I would say, like on the playground, I would describe it as the, uh, uh, I know you are, but what am I, phase of the uh, investigation. Whatever the 160 committee does, the incoming majority, if there is one, of the Republicans going to turn around and do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that that probably um, that that is the background for everything I'm about to describe to you. I don't think we're going to see um, a, um, I think I don't think we're going to see criminal prosecutions of any of these members, number one. They're not even absent the tit-for-tat reality of the House of Representatives uh, tit-for-tat possibility. 
I just don't think the evidence is there in the same way that they are for the big four, the uh, Mount Rushmore of possible criminality based on the evidence that's coming in. Trump, mm-hmm. Meadows, Eastman, and Clark. Um, that doesn't mean that they'll get off scot-free. I do think that the committee is going to be quite severe on these members of Congress. They're going to put the evidence out there, and then there'll be a determination whether to seek censure. I do think that there will be some kind of internal recommendations for the House that the committee puts out there, um, whether uh, depending on the level of involvement of these members of Congress and the proven evidence that the committee induces, you know, should they should they get a, a, a slap on the wrist by the House of Representatives? But that's as far as it goes. I don't think you're going to see expulsion. Uh, I don't think you're going to see um, criminal prosecution. And unfortunately, I don't think you're going to see electoral consequences because these people are in bright red districts. Uh, and um, uh, uh, that is just that is just the reality of the world. Yeah, look, I don't understand any of this. You know what else I don't understand? And I want to just draw a quick comparison and then move on. But I went to prison in part because I paid Stormy Daniels. I didn't steal money from her like Avenatti did. I paid $130,000 to her. Not to Kara McDougal, by the way, which I had to plead guilty to as well. That was paid by David Pecker and AMI and the National Enquirer. But I went to prison in part for that. You know, there's an article that recently came out about Matt Gates's wingman, the guy Joel Greenberg, who allegedly is going to be sentenced uh, in August, right? Now, it's interesting to me that Greenberg is looking at some serious time for this underage sex trafficking, but yeah. yet Matt Gates seems to be nowhere as far as the investigation, it's almost like a mini Donald. I mean, these guys are never held accountable for shit. You know, not only do we have, as we had in my case, we had a copy of the check, we had a copy of the NDA, yeah. we had the whole, you know, we had a, a bunch of uh, other, you know, information. Matt Gates Venmoed Greenberg money. There's text and emails and, you know, and phone calls and so on between the two of them regarding this underage sex trafficking, and yet, forget about a censor, right, or expulsion. The the legal case, why? Because he claimed it didn't happen? Because he claimed no wrongdoing? So right now he's, he's not facing any criminal charges? I don't get it. And this is what's turning so many people off. You and I, and this is what my next book, Department of Injustice, is going to be about. You and I do not have the same legal rights as these motherfuckers. We just do not. All right? Let me be very clear. These people have control over the levers of power, and they use it for their own benefit. And what happens to people, the average guy like you or me or my listeners, does not happen to them. Matt Gates was caught with his pants down and his pecker out and his, and his checkbook out there, and yet there's no charges, all right? That seems to be a real problem, and I think it's turning off the American people, and hopefully 
it'll be a rally cry why your vote is so important and why you better get your asses out there and start voting, uh, not just in this midterm, but start ensuring that you're going to be voting in the, in the general election. Because th these folks have really figured out how to take advantage of the system. The Mea Culpa podcast is like no other podcast I go on, Michael, because you, you wear your heart on your sleeve. There's also some X-rated language on this podcast. Well, it's rated uh, for explicit anyway, but listen, it let's is. just move forward. Yeah, that is. That is <laughs> All right. Here's deeper. my answer to you. Yes. Under Merrick Garland, everyone gets the same deal. Um, well. He's, as I've told you, I do think that he's moving up the ladder on the election conspiracy crimes. We'll see if get, Trump gets charged. You know, I don't know what's going on with why Greenberg has gotten uh, the treatment he has and Matt Gates so far, nothing. Um, it may be that there are defects of proof. I don't think, but but I know the AG, and I just don't believe that he would cut anybody, Democrat or Republican, any special breaks. He is not a, you know, he's going to look at this in a kind of clinical, prosecutorial way. He's going to look at all of these. Here's the rules. What do the prosecutors recommend? What are the risks? He's not going to take a political orientation. So I hear your anger. I do think we're going to see charges finally against Trump in Georgia. Could be as soon as this year. So that'll be something, Michael. When Trump is charged, you got to admit, that'll be something, right? Yeah. And we're all waiting That's for coming, it. coming, finally. We're waiting for it. And, you know, I think it's terrible that Bill Barr, coming back to him, that he closed the book on the Trump obstruction charges. You were the target of some of the obstruction. That's right. Um, it's outrageous that, you know, you were prosecuted and Trump was not. As you know, I, that's how we met. I gave a year plus of my life to go work up on the Hill to try to do something about it in impeachment. And we're still trying to do something about it in Congress. The one six committee is making progress. And if you look at the polls, Michael, the American people are to some extent are waking up. So there's pluses here. There are pluses. It's not fast. There's a lot of people who should face justice and accountability who aren't. But, you know, uh, to paraphrase that 19th century clergyman uh, who said uh, the arc, uh, the moral arc of the universe uh, is slow, but it bends towards justice. You know, the accountability is slow, but it's bending towards justice. So we'll we'll uh, and we're going to continue to talk about that. Well, thank God we have people then like Liz Cheney. And I don't know if oh you saw, gosh. but when, she, when Liz Cheney recently gave this speech at the Reagan Library, that some are saying yeah. it's, it's an opening bid for her for a presidential run. And I got to be honest with you, um, I never thought much of Liz Cheney over the years, but watching her here, if there had to be a Republican running, boy, I think she would be, you know, she would be the, you know, the new Lady in the Iron Knickers, that's for sure. Now, yeah, she she's served, incredible. Yeah, I mean, she's serving admirably on this January 6th committee, but she's still very right wing, right? And her and and she's her father's daughter. So let me ask you this. What do you think of Liz politics? And further, what sort of a president do you think that she would make? Because let, let me let me just say one last thing. Other than DeSantis, I mean, to me. She's looking like a GOP front runner. Uh, well, 
unfortunately, the GOP is in the thrall of Trump. And, you know, my book, Overcoming Trumpery, it's in the, hmm. thall, the thrall of Trumpery. Okay? So I think that the, she should be the front runner. But I think DeSantis uh, is, is like, and I think she'll be in the mix. I hope she will be. I'm more concerned <laughs> that she wins her primary in Wyoming uh, than I am about her presidential aspirations. Um, and then I do think DeSantis, who's a firm acolyte, he's going to fight Trump, but he embraces Trumpery, Michael, all of the sins of Trump's style of governance. I think DeSantis is probably the most formidable uh, to oppose Trump. And I think he's going to take Trump on with respect. He's not going to do it with hostility. He's not going to criticize Trump. He's not going to take the Liz Cheney approach. He's going to take a respectful approach, but say, you know, we need to build on uh, Trump's successes, um, but we need somebody fresh to do it. And that's going to be, boy, that's going to be a battle, DeSantis versus Trump. Yeah. So let me let me once again somewhat disagree with you on that one. I believe that DeSantis has to take Trump on because anything that comes out of DeSantis's mouth, um, like what you just said, where it's respectful, Trump doesn't see it that way. And he will start to attack DeSantis and he'll attack him vociferously to the point that DeSantis will come out and say the things that he really wants to say. So I'm certain that they are right now weighing exactly how that they would launch, you know, um, their campaign, how they would use or not use Trump as the way, um, you know, to propel him to the uh, GOP as the GOP nominee. But if I can just do this for a second, I want to say about Liz Cheney's, you know, remarks, these blistering remarks about Trump. And it's why I believe she would be a great GOP candidate, though I don't think that she'll end up getting there because because of these types of words, right? And we all know that Trump still has a control over a certain portion of the Republican Party. But she said the following, we are confronting a domestic threat that we have never faced before. And that is a former president who is attempting to unravel the foundations of our constitutional republic. And he is aided by Republican leaders and elected officials who have made themselves willing hostages to this dangerous and irrational man. So she's already now put herself down the path where naturally she's critical of him, but it's not just of him. It's these Republican leaders and the elected officials. And the saddest part about the whole thing is this is what's going to end up keeping somebody who is highly qualified to run for the office, certainly more qualified than Donald, certainly more qualified than some of the other candidates that you might see, you know, popping up there. And it's just a shame because she's telling the truth and because the truth doesn't benefit many of these Republicans, these elected Republican officials, they're going to attack her and they're going to attack, they're going to attack her in a way that we've 
haven't seen really since Trump stood up there with the 17 other individuals. But let me ask you this, Norm, just moving on for a sec. The Supreme Court has made a decision to hear a case that could lead to an erosion of voting rights and an increased likelihood of election interference. It's the North Carolina case where um, they're presenting the independent state legislature clause or theory that says basically that the state can decide to overrule the election results. Now, that's probably a significant oversimplification by me of what's at stake. But being the expert, what's your take on how the court will proceed and how could this law affect our elections? Well, um, it's a very serious um, threat to the uh, effective way that American elections are run. Um, What the law proposes to do, uh, 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 I should say, what the Supreme Court might do, and we don't know, Michael, they've only taken up the case. So we don't know how they'll decide, you know, will they do something extremely radical like the Dobbs abortion case? Will they do something uh, in the middle uh, like the uh, like they did with the uh, the case uh, uh, regulating the EPA? Still bad, but not as radical as Dobbs. Or will they do what they did with the uh, Biden immigration uh, rules and side on the uh, uh, side of reason. Um, the the essence of the case is the Constitution talks about the authority of state legislatures uh, to regulate elections. The state legislatures have delegated that authority uh, through uh, various statutes uh, and through state constitutions to election officials to courts and others, there's a system, and it's a system that works well. They want to reduce the ability of state legislatures to hand that power off. And in its most radical form, they want to say to state legislatures, the next time Donald Trump calls, as he did in 2020, and he says, hey, I want you to overturn the votes of the people, even though they clearly chose uh, my opponent, and you put my electors for president in Mm -hmm. that they can do that that's the most radical form unchecked power for these state legislatures i hope the supreme court won't do it but that's what the case is about nobody knows how it'll turn out Right. But what what we do know is that the Supreme Court has literally lost its collective mind and they're just running amok right now. But I know that we've talked about this. That's right. Now, we've talked about this before. But what happened at the end of the last Supreme Court cycle is unprecedented. Roe v. Wade, they're now talking about LGBTQ rights, they're talking about uh, Ogerberfeld. And, you know, look, let me ask you this, Norman, is there anything that can be done to turn these terrible rulings around? And further, you know, what's the end game for these six rogue justices? Because whatever it is, it's definitively not democracy. Well, um, I think we have to expand the court. Um, the- me too. The, the they've given us nobody likes that solution 
But this rogue court has given us no choice. It's not just that they've gone amok with their decisions, but they're illegitimately constituted, Michael, because they claim that Obama could not get Merrick Garland his choice for the court because it was an election year. And then they turned and they blocked Mitch McConnell and the Senate GOP blocked Garland. And then they turned around. And on an even shorter time frame, in the uh, at the end of Trump's term, they confirmed Amy Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, yes. So there's the hypocrisy there. Both of those seats have an asterisk. Brett Kavanaugh, very serious allegations arose. Those were never investigated. That was blocked. So those three justices all have asterisks, in my view. Um, and uh, and that's why I think that uh, we must, uh, uh, you know, that's part of the reason uh, that, look, the last there's nothing sacred. It's not in the Constitution. The Supreme Court has nine justices. Congress has the power to adjust that number. It's done so before. Um, when they set it to nine in the 19th century, there were nine judicial circuits. Guess what? We have 13 judicial circuits now. I think that's a pretty good number. Uh, listen, I totally agree with you. Something has to be done. And this is why I think there was that Democrat who called Biden at this time rudderless and needs to start doing that. He just needs to do something. He needs to act. Because if we're going to allow this to happen, I, I, I'm dead serious. I think we're going to lose our democracy. And it's a scary concept. But Norm, let me just say this. As I've told you before in earlier podcasts, the hour goes by quickly here on Maya Culpa. So I have just really one last question for you. There's a whole bunch of background players that have, you know, sort of dropped out of the news cycle, but they're still out there fundraising under the banner of Reawaken. I mean, guys like Mike Flynn, Eric Trump, yes. Roger Stone, Don Trump Jr., right? They're, they're out pushing this Christian nationalism that even some Baptists are pushing back on. So my yes. first question is, how are these guys still out there raising money? I got yesterday because I had signed up for it early, early on just to see what Trump is up to, what kind of bullshit. Literally, it starts at 175. It goes to 350 to 700, then 1500. I mean, he's not talking about a dollar here. He's going for real money. Now, I guess it's legal until... These guys are prosecuted. But come on now. I mean, these guys are just fucking charlatans. They're stealing money every day. I mean, look, Trump also had that Stop the Steal fund that he raised $250 million. And where did it go? Into his pocket. I mean, who's monitoring all this and how can it be stopped? <laughs> well, that is a suitable... Um a uh, question for a future podcast, for a future podcast. Um, I do believe that the most important remedy is uh, that we start with prosecutions of the ringleaders, Trump, Eastman, Clark, uh, and Meadows. All of them are still Jared Kushner, Don Jr., Ivanka, Lara, all of them. All of them are still out there. Um and um, that's where we have to start. And then, you know, there has to be a serious look at what the frauds that were committed. But let's start at the top. Let's get that prosecution. That will make everything else work. That will have a ripple effect. And hopefully we'll see 
additional criminal and civil litigation. I know this for sure, whether it happens or it doesn't, I'll be back with you to discuss it. And I look forward to the 300th, the 400th podcast, Michael. Thank you so much for having me and for everything you do on the show. So Ambassador Norm Eisen, let me thank you again. Let me also tell my followers to go. Please check out his site at Brookings. Also, you know, at Norm Eisen, um, just to follow him on Twitter, see, you know, the things that he's doing to help us to save, you know, democracy, the things that he's doing to help to ensure that whatever we can do outside of government that we're doing. So, Norm, let me thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me again, you know, on Mea Culpa. And I definitively will be seeing you again because there's just too much going on to talk about. Congratulations on number 200. Thanks, my friend. And now for today's Mea Culpa. There's this special thing that a president gets to do that must be one of the real perks of the job. It's an award he bestows to our best and brightest to show the world who we are and what we are made of. And this year's Presidential Medal of Freedom recipients are some of the most outstanding and unique individuals to ever receive the highest civilian honor that the United States has to offer. And in this moment of worldwide unrest, the Presidential Medal of Freedom offers us a grace note, a moment to be in awe and inspired by the outstanding achievements of our fellow human beings, our fellow Americans. On July 1st, President Biden recognized 17 amazing people who, according to historian Heather Cox Richardson, appear to have been chosen quite deliberately to provide a snapshot of a multicultural, nonpartisan society in which people work to overcome hardship and contribute to the public good. Biden, who is an honoree himself, named so by President Barack Obama, presented the awards to his chosen few at the White House. Amongst them, perhaps the greatest actor of our time, Denzel Washington, who also happens to be the spokesperson for the Boys and Girls Clubs of America since 1993. Olympic gymnastics icon and mental health warrior Simone Biles received her medal as well, with her huge smile on full display. Soccer great Megan Rapinoe wore BG embroidered in her lapel, reminding Biden to bring Brittany Griner home. There was gun violence survivor and activist, Representative Gabby Gifford. Gold Star father and advocate for religious freedom, Kazir Khan, and in a nod to an old friend, Biden gave John McCain the award posthumously. While handing his widow Cindy McCain the medal, Biden told the audience that he and Jill had set John and Cindy up on their very first date. Also awarded was Wilma Vaught, a brigadier general and the most decorated woman in the United States military. There was a nun, a nurse, a college president, a civil rights activist, a priest, and a U.S. senator from Wyoming. There was Steve Jobs in spirit only, but who, like the recipients, did great things in his life that will live on. Biden said that his recipients demonstrate the power of possibilities, hard work, perseverance, and faith. They have overcome significant obstacles to achieve impressive accomplishments and dedicated their lives to advocating for the most vulnerable amongst us and acted with bravery to drive change in their communities. 
I like to think of mea culpa as a community or a movement of folks who still believe in democracy and America despite all of our flaws. And though I'm president of nothing, I just want to say to the everyday heroes, the helpers and the teachers and all the good people out there doing their best, I see you and I honor you. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa.